This evening we're going to look at Psalm 145 together. And so if you would like to follow along in your bulletin, you can follow along as I read it, or you can just listen, whichever you prefer to do. Psalm 145. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to take one more week to look with you at a psalm, and I want to look at this, at Psalm 145 to do that. We started several weeks ago looking at the very first five psalms in the book of Psalms, and I'm jumping all the way to the end, and I hope that it'll become clear why I'm doing that in just a moment. But I think arguably the, one of the most important features of the book of, the, of Psalms is the way that it gives voice to the full range of human experience that you or I might go through this side of heaven. I really think all that's there. And it's part of the reason why the Psalms have been so well used in the life of the church ever since they were written. And in fact, the most common type of psalm is a psalm of lament or a complaint, a cry for help. And I I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the title to this book, Psalms, means songs of praise. And it's a bit ironic, or there's tension when you think about it for a moment, that Here's this book of 150 prayers, the title to which is Songs of Praise. But the vast majority of those songs are not songs of praise. They're songs songs of complaint, 
of grief, of sorrow, of lament. And I think we're meant to ask, well, why then call it songs of praise if that's not the vast majority of what we read there? Is is this, as it were, false advertising? Are we being misled in the way that the Bible portrays all of these prayers? And I, I think, perhaps it's no surprise, I don't think we are, but I want to tell you why. When you take the book of Psalms as a whole, I think what we see is a very clear movement from despair to praise. And we even see this within individual Psalms. For example, let let me just give you a little taste from Psalm 13. It is perhaps one of the most raw and honest cries for God to answer that you will find in the entire 150 Psalms. It starts out like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That is a desperate cry of isolation with no end in sight. Now, there's only six verses in Psalm 13. And I just read you verse 1. But then listen to what we read in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 13. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. How can those two things exist in, the, in all of the 150 Psalms or just in one Psalm where you have these eruptions of praise? And I think here's the point that I want you to get tonight and we're going to work it out from Psalm 145 is that woven into the very fabric of the Psalms as a whole and even bubbling over in individual psalms is the goal of all prayer. And the goal of all prayer is praise to God. That the psalms never... We should never read the psalms as if their intention is to leave you where you are. Their intention is to give voice to where you are in your relationship with God in order that in your relationship with God, no matter what's going on, you could move from despair to praise. So when we come to Psalm 145, this psalm, especially as it's at the end of the the Psalter, highlights the goal of prayer, which is to praise God. And think of it like this. Do you ever remember walking through the mall and there's the kiosks in the mall, and they have these, these pictures. And really, when you just look at them, all they look, look like are just splotches of color. Sometimes they might have like little geometric shapes if you start to look at it a little bit. But they're called stereograms. I don't know if anybody remembers what these are. But you stand there, and you, they don't look like anything. And then you stare at it long enough. You just stare at it. And all of a sudden, like... I don't know, Donald Duck, like, emerges. And he's cl- it's clear as day. Or there's some of them are like the space shuttle comes out at you. That is an is a image of how the goal of, pray- of praise, the goal of prayer being praised works in the Psalms. As you stare at your situation... In prayer to God, praise begins to emerge. 
But sometimes I've stat, stat, stood there and looked at those stereograms, and I, it's, uh, sometimes I've never seen the picture. It can take a while. So when we come to Psalm 145, I want you to see something here, just by the way the psalm is written. It's, it's what we call an acrostic psalm, which is a fancy word for saying that every verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a way for a, a writer to say to you, I am telling you everything there is to know from A to Z about prayer. It's an anthology. But what's interesting about this is if it's an anthology and if David in, in writing this psalm is trying to give you a comprehensive picture of prayer, there's a lot that's left out. Because there, is, there are no complaints in Psalm 145. It is praise from beginning to end. And the point here is that David, at the very end of the Psalter, is showing you all prayer has for its goal praise of God. One writer put it like this, because let, let me say this before I read you this, this quote. I think our knee-jerk reaction sometimes can be, especially if you're cynical, or if, if you feel like sometimes Christianity is a religion that kind of glosses over the hard parts of life. To say that the goal of prayer is praise can make you feel like, well, I don't really feel like you're hearing me, or that you're, you're running over the realities of my life. But listen to how this one writer puts it. He says, all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime. But the end is always praise. So what I want to do with you is I want to look at this Psalm 145 with you. To see what it has to teach us about how do we get to this goal. How does this, this psalm of praise help us get there? And it teaches us, I think, three things that we need. We need to commit to worship God alone. We need to hurt, rehearse God's greatness. And we need to receive God's goodness. So first we need to commit to worship God alone. Notice in verse 1. In verse 2, what's David say? He says, I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. The very last verse, verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is a commitment to worship God. And it's a commitment that David describes as every day. I will bless you. For his entire life, he says, forever and ever, I will bless you. That every aspect of his life, for the entire length of his life, is committed to praise. It's persistent, but it's also, it's exclusive. He says, I will extol you, my God and my King. I'll bless your name. I will bless you every day. Now, pressing this commitment that you need to commit to worship God is a little bit of a, a two-step because you're committed to worshiping something. 
you will either commit your life to worshiping God or you will commit your life to worshiping something else. And that is precisely our problem. At, at, the, at the center of every person's struggle to worship God in this room is the struggle that we all face, that we love and trust someone or something other than God. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. It's looking to other things for what only God can give. One writer puts it like this, we want things and we aren't sure God will give them to us, so we put our trust in other gods. This is the problem of the human heart. Misplaced trust. We value, love, and trust something in creation more than the Creator. And see, this isn't just a Christian problem or a religious problem. This is a human problem. And I, I came across a, uh, a speech by a writer, David Foster Wallace. Perhaps some of you know who he is. He, he gave a commencement speech in 2005 at Kenyon College. And I don't know a whole lot about David Foster Wallace, uh, except his life ended tragically. But as far as I can tell, he's not a professing religious person. He's not a Christian. He's not someone who believes what we're here to do tonight. But listen to what he says about worship. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of good, some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are our default settings. See, any lasting commitment to worship God, it requires rooting out our default settings, our unconscious worship of anything other than God. And how do you do that? He just spoke of, in that quote, three what we might call functional saviors. Money, sex, and power. How can you begin to unearth these default settings? Let me ask you some questions. And if one resonates with you, jot it down or try to remember it. What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Not just in the eyes of other people, but in your own eyes. Where do you look for power and success, security and acceptance? See, those questions are meant to bring to the surface these unconscious 
default settings. And in these, shall we say, unconscious default settings, they have at least three common characteristics. False worship, misplaced trust. They, it always takes on a God-like, larger-than-life proportion. They become the things around which you center your life. That's the first thing. They act like a God in your life. But the second one is they promise stability and peace as long as you can hold on to it. They promise stability and peace for as long as you don't screw up. Which leads to the third. Anything that gets our misplaced trust, it demands absolute loyalty. In other words, idols are graceless. There is no room for weakness, for failure. There is no promise of forgiveness or help. You see, when you begin to let that soak in, that those things that you trust in other than God, that rob you of a commitment to worship Him, they, they take on larger-than-life proportions. They promise you a false stability and peace, and they are, in fact, graceless. So then what, what do we need to loosen the grip of this misplaced trust? David tells us we need two things. We need God's greatness, and we need His goodness. So first, let's look at rehearsing God's greatness. Notice in verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, and then look at verses 10 and 12. If you just were to go through those verses, you would see again and again that God's greatness is revealed in His actions. God reveals to you his greatness in his actions. And there's a repetition of words in these verses that make that clear. Things like, your works, mighty acts, wondrous works, mighty deeds. You see, for David, when he says, he talks about these mighty works of God, he has in mind God's faithfulness to him as the king of Israel. And even bigger than that, he he has in mind God's Salvation, his deliverance of his people from Egypt, from the Exodus. But even as we sit here, after the death and resurrection, we have to see in these mighty works a God who, at infinite cost to himself, would send his son into the world to live the same existence you and I live, to experience the same dysfunction and alienation and brokenness and sorrow and shame and loneliness that we experience. That this is a God who gets involved in history. And not just from a distance, but personally. In in other words, David is telling you, I'm here telling you about this God who he is at work. He's at work in personal, everyday ways in people's lives, and he's at work throughout history. In other words, Here's maybe a practical strategy if you find that hard to to believe. Begin by working backwards from these great ways the Bible talks about God's work. Work backwards from that to your own personal life. 
Because if he is like if he is at work those ways, as the Bible tells us throughout history, you can rest assured he's at work in much smaller ways in the everydayness that you and I experience. So God, he, he reveals his greatness in his actions, but notice these are actions that for David, they're memorable. Verse 4, he says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. In other words, these are not just for here and now. They're forever. And I couldn't help, as I was reflecting on this, there were two sports highlight reels that came to mind. The first was the 1992 shot that Christian Leitner made against Kentucky, which is particularly meaningful to me because I went to Duke and I was for that. I know some people are not. Every year when the NCAA championship comes around, you see that shot countless times. My sons now know about that shot in 1992. Another one that came to mind was, uh, and I realize this is a little bit closer to home for some of you, uh, was in 2013 when Auburn's Chris Davis had that kick six against Alabama and Auburn won that game. I guarantee you I'm new to Alabama. I have not watched the Iron Bowl that much, but I am sure every year that game gets played, that play will be replayed. Now, here's what I want you to think about. What memorable events or actions do you rehearse about your own life? What memorable events or actions do you rehearse about God? What parts of God's work in history, even if you don't know very much about the Bible at all, what things have you, do you know of that resonate with you? You see, David is telling us that these events, these acts that God has, has done, they become the defining reference point from which you are to see all of your life. They become the, the ways in which God's people understand their history, where they came from. They become the reference point for how you understand who you are as a human being. And what you need. They become the fundamental reference point from which you draw future hope. You see, when David says, they shall commend your works to another, notice what he says here. He's saying that they're relevant. I just heard that. Are we okay over there? Okay, all right. Um... I just didn't want to get shocked or something. Um, I'll try to speak up so it doesn't drown us out. How do you tell these things from one generation to the next? Notice here what he says. We can string this together. He says, David says, I meditate, verse 5. And then he says, one generation shall speak about these things and they commend them. So how do you and I, as a, in a church like Red Mountain rehearse these acts, these things that God has done. Well, we have to meditate on them. We have to reflect on them. We have to ask, what do they mean? What did they do? But then we need to speak about them one to another. And when we do that, 
we begin to see how they can connect. When he uses that word to commend, they're plausible. They become persuasive. They begin to rewrite, as it were, the way you think about who you are and how God is at work in your life. So his greatness is revealed in his acts, which are memorable. But then, what do you do, though, when his greatness seems lacking or absent? Look in verse 11 to 13. Four times we read of the, the, he repeats the word kingdom, and one time the, the word dominion. In verses 11 to 13. And in particular, I want you to look at verse 13. He says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. What do you do when God's greatness seems absent or lacking? The answer is in verse 13. That God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. David writes this for doubting people. It is a word of assurance. It is a word that tells you his kingdom will never end. Any great thing God has done cannot be undone. And in fact, every great thing God has done bears witness to greater things he will do. That's the story of the gospel. And in fact, Jesus, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, when he's at the very end, last thing he says to his disciples, what's he say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's kingdom language. That's kingly language. And then what's he say? I will be with you to the end of the age. You see, here is a word of assurance in the midst of your experience, your struggle to commit to worship God and Him alone, particularly when He seems absent or He's coming up short. Now, how do you experience that? The only way for us to experience personally this greatness is to receive His goodness. This is our last point. You see, in order to unravel our struggle to praise God, God expresses His greatness in His goodness. See, God would be great no matter what. But if He didn't choose freely and willingly to show that greatness to us in His goodness, it would be lost on us. So here He shows His goodness to us. And I want to show you about this. First of all, I want you to see the character of His goodness. Look in verse 7, or actually verse 8, and in verse 9. He says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know when I said earlier how idols work in your life, that they are graceless. There's no room for failure. There's no room for weakness. There is no forgiveness. Remember how I said, that idols take on larger-than-life proportions, God-life proportions. Well, here we're being told about a God who is the author of life, a God who is gracious and patient. Here David is undoing our misplaced trust. He is showing you the character of this God who is great, and he's showing you this character of this God who is gracious and merciful. His love has no end. In fact, he's quoting from Exodus 34. 
And if you're curious, you can go back and look. Exodus 34, where he's quoting from, comes right after. This is at Mount Sinai, where Moses has been on Mount Sinai, receiving God's covenant words from God. And while he's up there, the entire nation of Israel are down at the base of the mountain, creating an idol and worshiping it. God himself describes himself this way, as gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, after God's people did that. What does that tell you? That the character of this God who gives goodness to people who don't deserve it is he is committed to you. He is committed to people who need him to overcome their false commitments. This is a God who is gracious, merciful, patient. And notice here he proves his goodness. Look in verses 14 through 20. I'm just going to go through these pretty quickly. But see if any of these resonate with you. And here's a little bit of a homework assignment. If one of these really catches your attention, own it for this coming week. Rehearse it. Let it seep into your heart and your mind and the way you think about the character of this God and your experience of everyday life. Look in verse 14. He says, The Lord upholds all who are falling, and He raises up all who are bowed down. Here is help for the weak. And it's a comprehensive picture. Look with me again. He upholds all who are falling. Do you feel like things are coming apart at the seams? Do you feel like you're about to get tripped up and you are going to face plant? Here is praise to a God who says, I uphold those who are falling. But maybe you feel like you've already fallen. And you don't know if you can get up tomorrow morning. You're not sure that you can overcome your failures as a friend or a spouse or a parent or a coworker. Listen to what he says. The Lord raises up all who are bowed down. This is help for the weak. But then, look in verses 15 to 16. He provides what we need. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Think with me for a moment. How many of you, if someone said, describe for me, I know you're a Christian, that you believe this God and Jesus stuff, but what is... What's one thing that you hold dear about your God? I wonder how many of us would say, He is open-handed with me. He's not tight-fisted. Here's why I, I put it this way and ask you that. Because if I'm honest, and I think if some of you were honest... We, we live our everyday life feeling like, when is God going to yank the carpet out from under me? When is that hand going to close? Here's what I need to tell you. We ha- I have better news for you than even what we have in this psalm. God's hands towards sinners will never, ever close. And do you know why? Because Jesus came. If you need to know, will God ever yank the carpet out from under me? 
Jesus' hands pierced, spread open on a cross is your permanent reminder that God's hands are open to you. He is generous. He will take care of you. But notice he also proves this and that he answers those who call on him in verses 18 and 19. He says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. He answers those who call on him, who call on him in truth. But notice something here. What does it mean to call on him in truth? It's what he says in verse 19 at the end. Those who cry out for help. Who say, I need saving. Answer me. And God answers those who call out to him. And then verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him. He will never leave you or forsake you. Four different ways. God shows his goodness. He proves it. He doesn't just tell you about it, that he is that way, but he proves it. In giving help for the weak, providing what we need, answering those who call on him, preserving those who belong to him. But see, this kind of goodness is not free for God. It's costly to him. It's free to us. It's not costly to us. It's costly to God because... The cost of this kind of goodness, it meant judgment for Jesus. You see, God's steadfast love towards sinners is that he would send his only son to bear the punishment that you and I deserve so that his goodness would fall on you and you could know he would never take it back. One of my favorite passages, I think, that illustrates this powerfully is in Romans 8 when Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, he brings together two things, the gift of Jesus and the goodness of God. You can't have one without the other. They go together. To have Jesus is to have God's goodness. But without Jesus, you forfeit God's goodness. That's the gospel that God puts in front of us, His Son, crucified, as the preeminent display of His goodness, of His graciousness, of His patience, of His forgiveness, of His steadfast love. And what, what I want you to take from this psalm is that the goal of prayer is praise. There's a pattern. And some of you, I'm getting to know some of you uh, more than others at this point. We haven't been here that long yet. If you haven't figured this out about me, you will. I'm kind of a half-glass-empty kind of guy. I'm sort of an Eeyore at times. And I think that's kind of what makes us a good match. <laughs> is I think sometimes we, Red Mountain Church is kind of that way. And that's not always bad. But it is bad if that's where we stay. And the gospel and this psalm put in front of you a pattern. That yes, there is is heartache. There is loss. There is pain. There is suffering. 
But there is resurrection. There is new life. The story of the Bible puts in front of you a movement from despair to praise. And it finds its power and its hope in the death of Jesus, which is followed by the resurrection of Jesus, which will find its fulfillment in his return. When everything he has done will not just be something we look forward to, but it will be something that you and I and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus experiences with him in the flesh together forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take this psalm, that you would help us to see how we can move from despair to to praise. Father, thank you that you call us to commit to praise and to worship you, even though it exposes our inability to do that. And we pray that you would help us to lay hold of your greatness and that by your spirit you would work out your goodness for us and that you would work it out in us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.